shaken and disturbed. As always, I am Darren Carp on the mic here with my boyf, Johnny John Boy Thrasher. Your boyf? My boyf. I will say, I want to say something. Before we started recording today, I was like, Darren, tilt your microphone just a little bit. And it, mm-hmm. and it sounds so great. I just feel like you're finally like really, like really in my head. I mean, it only listen, took you five years. Are. It only I took know. five years of, of true crime podcasting, but yeah. we finally landed on it. Isn't that nice? Darren, welcome to the show. I oh, feel thanks like for having me. You're well. Yeah. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for yeah. doing I feel like we should talk about the Adnan Syed breaking news reaction episode that we posted last week because we got a lot of reaction. A Um, lot of really, really good feedback. What I've been thinking sort of this week as I've been watching Rabia's mm -hmm. stories and like the normalness of his Mm -hmm. life and just like having leftovers from the fridge. I know. Is like also I wonder how many like TV producers are outside the house? Like how many deals is this guy? Like that's the thing too is like Hulu or Netflix or Amazon or Peacock or like Disney. Are they going to pay him two mil for the exclusive act? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like we were talking a little bit about the nuance of maybe him suing or not suing and how like either way we would support him and the compensation he deserves and like easily could be convinced that he wants to put this whole thing behind him or fight for it. But I'm also kind of like, his life will now be, you know, someone was like, well, what's he yeah. going to do now? He's always going to be Adnan Syed. And I go, yeah. And so he's going to be able to have probably a different life in some sort of criminal yeah. justice reform or nonprofit and be the face for this, you know? Like, he might not, yeah. but he'll be okay. Like, he will come out of this victorious. I, I am confident I, of this, you know? Uh, if he yeah. hasn't already, essentially. I would imagine, and I want to make a little correction on on that episode last week. I said that he was studying for his PhD. I meant to say he was studying for his bachelor's degree. Right. Um, and I think he like maybe has aspirations to go to law school, which is I think pretty impressive and interesting, given that the law was the reason that most of his you know younger years have been missing. But yeah, I agree with you. I've been thinking about the same thing, and who really knows what's going to happen next? But I'm excited to watch and see like what happens. And expect you know 2023 guarantee Q4 of 2023, a year plus time, maybe oh, 2024 yeah. Q1. Really good ad non doc. I guarantee you, they're going <laughs> to well, like everyone's going to come out with them simultaneously. You well, know? it's funny because Rabia did the HBO documentary, which I watched right. the first episode. It's called The Case Against Adnan Syed. And I'm wondering, like, you know, if part knowing her and just how she's like so smart and so on top of her stuff, like, I bet she probably built something in that, like, if Adnan's released, you know, like, you know, exclusive rights to have Adnan like on HBO Max or something. Right. I don't know. She's just so savvy, you know. I was gonna say she's gonna hold it down for him if he can't. You know what I mean? Even if he if he feels like he can't hold it down for himself. But speaking um, of holding it down in terms of drinking. What are you drinking today, boo-boo? Well, let me just say, I know that we've been talking about this damn espresso martini for the last several weeks. Here we go. I want to say, I didn't. I said in the notes, I was like, Darren, don't mention it because this happened and I don't want the fans to think something happened. I literally went out on my lunch break today to buy, I don't know what it was, it's on my phone, the ingredients for an espresso martini. Well, I only had a short window of time during my lunch break. I arrive at the liquor store. And it's closed in the middle of the day. And I'm like, why are you closed? Like, I'm looking in the window and I'm like, what's going on? So I start to leave and this guy comes out and he goes, oh, we're usually open. Um, The power's out today. So I can't sell any. And I was like, today? What do you mean? 
Yeah. Also, why would that? Maybe because credit card machines. Yeah, I would imagine like everything's down, so they can't literally, yeah, touch and sell things. I, I guess. So the one time I went out to get the stuff, I don't have it. So I'm just having water because after this, I'm going to be driving. So I don't want to be too tipsy and crunk. But Darren, what are you drinking? What's happening on your side of it? Well, I didn't drop the ball this week. I'm having my Java House uh, espresso How martini. How is it? I'm so well, jealous. You, as the coffee goes, right. you know, I, it's like the only coffee I can drink without milk, which is great, which I find to actually be better with alcohol because when I have a normal espresso martini, it has cream in it, and which is fine, and I like I know, that, yeah. and that's great. But yeah. something about it, like, kind of hurts my stomach, whereas with this, yeah. it's kind of just coffee and you know yeah and, and vodka gin you know depending on what right. you want to put in it and so it feels a little bit smoother to me i like that even I though like without that. the milk but i'm enjoying it and uh cheers to you even though i know cheers. it's a little bit uh bad to cheers with water cheers no, to you that's all right no i appreciate it um darren i want to get into some Lumi gummy stuff because we love Lumi microdose gummies here on the show yeah, if you I haven't noticed already were you excited yeah were you excited to get home and like back to work and using these to like help you i was wondering if you've been missing them because when i was there at your place i saw them and i was like yeah i, I didn't eating these <laughs> i didn't take them with me so i was kind of looking forward to having them when i got home um and it was a yeah. little hard to like manage my jet lag and then i had to kind of go into meetings be creative when you're really six hours off yeah, of everything I can imagine. yeah and i found that the lumi micro and i was kind of surprised by this i thought why not try it because i honestly wasn't sure like is this going to help me kind of acclimate better or feel calmer? Yeah. My stomach gets very upset about things. Like if I wake up early without getting proper sleep, my stomach really hurts and I wake Ew, up I kind of nauseous. Saying. Yeah. And I just felt like the Lumi microdose gummies kind of kept me balanced all day. Oh, like okay. I didn't feel any really head effect. It was mostly just like staying, keeping me focused, keeping my stomach right. And so I could really focus on the task at hand. So That was, yeah, it was really wildly helpful. And like I said, they really taste good. So they can be dangerous in the sense of like, I'll just have 20 because, (laughs) you know, they're delish. They're They're delish. Yeah. Well, our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good, like Darren was just describing. Oh, you know it. Microdose is available nationwide. (laughs) To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code SHAKEN to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com, code SHAKEN. Darren, let's get into, let's shake and bake into our next... Our, in, into our episode, I should say. Let's macrodose this case. <laughs> into it, yes. In 1985, Sherry Rasmussen lived with her husband, John Rutten, in Los Angeles. And Sherry worked as an RN, that's a registered nurse, while mm-hmm. John worked as an engineer. And in November of 1985, the couple married. On the morning of February 24th, 1986, Johnny I'm, Boy was just one, one month, month old. old. I barely can barely, bar- barely knew what was ahead of me at that point. He did not know. No. On the morning of John being one month old, (laughs) Sherry wasn't feeling well and called in sick to work. John arrived home that evening just before 6 p.m. to find his garage door open and his BMW missing. Wait a minute. John, 1986, BMW. BMW. This is one too many correlations here for me. Well, immediately he knew something was strange, just like you would, Johnny Boy, if your Mm -hmm. BMW was missing. And it seemed unlikely to him that his sick wife would be out, and even more so that she would have left without having closed the garage door. Now, by the way, that's where we differ, because I would never have a wife. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that where you differ. That we know. It's just interesting how much context clues sometimes we can gather from our significant others you know we like oh well, this sure. is strange behavior that they put the toilet seat down because i know that they never put the toilet seat down so someone else must have been here like we yeah. absorb we absorb so much more than we think we absorb you know I, I absorb things like that to a fault yeah to the point where i'm not exaggerating i don't know if you remember darren when i was at your place a couple of weeks ago i came home from like the u.s open or something one night and your apple tv was on Yes. And I texted you, you were in Portugal, and it was like definitely like three o'clock in the morning or something. And I was like, um, just to be clear, like nobody else has <laughs> your key, do they? So Which is I don't not know if also maybe... the thing you want to get in Portugal when you're Well, that's you know... true. I thought about that. I was like, do I and then I like looked over at the ch- a chair that was by your um your window and I was like, I don't remember moving that chair, but maybe I did. I don't know. Then I started overthinking things. But Nonetheless, I I really pick up on things about people to the point that it drives me crazy because I can tell things about them that like maybe they don't even know about themselves in some way. Yeah, no, so, I get it. Yeah, I yeah, get it. That's all. Yep. Well, obviously, this was strange for John and John entered his townhouse and immediately found Sherry's lifeless body on the mm. floor of the living room. She'd been shot three times in Ugh. the chest. John called the police, who arrived at his home and began looking for clues as to what might have happened. The entire living room was in total chaos. There looked to have been an intense struggle between Sherry and her attacker. Detectives believe that the two intruders entered the house through an upstairs window, so they think that there's two intruders now. One of the burglars began gathering up electronics and ransacking the home for valuables, which would make sense why the living room was in chaos, while the other scoped out the house, surprised, surprised Sherry, excuse me, and wasn't expecting her to be home. A struggle obviously ensued. Sherry was six feet tall, Whoa. very fit, and looked to have probably put up a good fight. You know, sometimes they can tell if there's skin underneath the fingernails and kind of how the defensive wounds are. Yeah. Uh, several shots from a 38 caliber caliber pistol, excuse me, were fired in the dining room of the second floor of the house, one of which may have struck Sherry. A trail of blood led from the dining room to the first floor of the home, and police believe that after being shot, Sherry tried to escape or to get right. to the home's alarm panel. However, her attacker pursued her, struck her over the head with a heavy vase from the Ugh. living room. God. And after hitting her over the head, the attacker fired several more shots at Sherry using a nearby quilt to muffle the sound of the shots, so like a silencer. Yeah, yeah. She was shot three times with bullets lodged in her spine, heart, and lungs. This is this is an incredible this is woman. a lot, yeah. But here's an interesting thing here. She also had a human bite mark on her left forearm mm-hmm. and a wound to her head from being struck by the vase, which of course would make sense. Yeah, exactly. So after killing Sherry, the intruders stole a number of valuable items from the house, including Sherry's jewelry bo- box and the BMW from the garage that we had just talked about. Right. D- Detective spoke to a housekeeper who was working next door around the time of the murder. She reported having heard a scream and an altercation, but no gunshots, and believed that Sherry and John May had been fighting. I will say it's weird that they mentioned that the research here mentioned scream because I was thinking everything you just uh, uh, said here on the show reminds me of like the opening of Scream, like the very first. Oh, that's interesting. Where like Drew Barrymore's like running through the house and there's like the killer and it's just like, oh dear, it's very disturbing. Or you know what I mean? Like there was like a fight ensuing inside this house. But well, police called in a criminologist named Lloyd Mahaney to inspect the crime scene. Lloyd searched for trace evidence on Sherry's body and performed a rape kit. However, neither search turned up any noteworthy evidence. 
Next, Lloyd inspected the bite mark on Sherry's arm. He made an impression of the marks to preserve them as evidence before swabbing the wound for DNA. You have to be, I imagine you have to be really careful with this, right? Because, you know, a bite mark is a bite mark, but like you, you dry that up or you even like, you know, touch it the wrong way. I feel like it kind of loses its. It's definitely different than dental records. And I think people have tried to use this in the court before about matching up the bite marks and the teeth. And I just don't think that that's really that accurate because it doesn't really have any DNA. You know, it's just kind of a pattern of your teeth. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I remember here, I, I feel like, did we do a we story did a about case. this? Yeah, and I, yeah. I don't know if it was Shaken and Disturbed or Martinis and Murder, but we've definitely dealt with this before. I want to say it was Martinis and Murder years ago. Or Betrayal with Darren Carp, or Killer Questions with Darren Carp. I mean, there's just so uh, many All options. of them are possible. All Absolutely. of them are possible. Well, nonetheless, Sherry's parents, Nels and Loretta, arrived from Arizona the day after her murder and spoke to detectives about the status of their daughter's case. Police informed them that they had ruled John out as a suspect and asked if they knew of anyone who might want to harm Sherry. I mean, the other thing, too, you have to remember, they stole a bunch of things from this house. So you almost wonder, you know, it's almost like, was it trying to harm Sherry or was it just trying to, you know, burglarize the house, essentially? Yeah, it's hard to say if she was a target or they right. she caught him off guard, you know? Is the term burgled the house or burglarized? Burgled? Burgled. Burgled. All right. Burgled. Well, nonetheless, you get what I'm saying here. Hamburglared. Hamburgled. <laughs> well, Nels told the officer that several months prior, Sherry had complained about one of John's ex-girlfriends. The woman had arrived at Sherry's job to confront her about her relationship with John. So now we've got a little element of drama going on here. Sherry's father didn't know the woman's name, but remembered Sherry mentioning that she worked, Darren, as an LAPD officer. So that's not good news. The detectives noted uh, down Nell's suspicions, but didn't really follow up on that lead. And although the BMW was found a week after the murder, it did not produce any further leads and investigators were at a loss for the for the next several weeks. I find this interesting because, you know, let's remember it is late 80s. There aren't cameras on every corner like there are now. There's no cell phones. There's no iPhone in everyone's pocket. So you would think that a BMW being found at the very least would produce some DNA. But then like even the DNA stuff was in its very early days. So there really was nothing to go by in a way that I feel like if this same exact scenario played out now, I feel like finding the BMW would be huge. You know? You'd think. I yeah. mean, it's hard to say because what we're alluding to right now is potentially this ex being an LAPD LAPD officer. Right. And she's oh. going to know. How to I'm just maintain. saying we're alluding. Right, we're let's alluding. See when it, let's see where we go. So two months after Sherry was killed, another burglary was committed just a few blocks from Sherry and John's townhouse. Two Latino men between 5'4 and 5'7 who threatened the residents with a gun. Okay, so we have specifics here. Now we Mm -hmm. kind of know we all, the police thought there was going to be two suspects anyway, you know, so okay. And we know that there are now two burgled's houses. Two burgled's. Two houses have been burgled, yep. These intruders became the prime suspect of Sherry's murder based solely on the similarities of both Mm -hmm. intrusions, but the two men remained at large. Mm. And in October, the Los Angeles Times ran a story about Sherry's death in the hopes of helping to find some new leads and announced that Sherry's family was now offering a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the capture of the two burglars. However, no new leads appeared, and Sherry's case unfortunately went cold. Mm. Sherry's family did everything they could to keep her in the public's mind, and they continually spoke to the media, renewing even the reward offer. And finally, we're up to the year that Decarp was born, 1988. 
And Nels, her dad, wrote to the chief of police on multiple occasions requesting that investigators specifically look into John's ex-girlfriend as a potential suspect. Hmm. I imagine that that thing that an NY that a, excuse me an LAPD officer or any police officer of any jurisdiction yeah. is gonna be tough sell. Yeah, for sure. I mean, unless this person has some sort of record of mal well, misconduct or whatever. But Darren, go ahead, tell us. Well, he eventually received a reply, and the officer told him that, quote, you watch too much television, <laughs> which feels like a direct attack on me. It's it's that. It's also a direct attack on me in the terms of, like, he's basically saying you listen to too many true crime podcasts before they were a thing. You know what but I mean? But also, that officer should fuck off. Like, who, yeah, of I understand you're not wanting to waste your time on crime, but if I'm telling you to look into this, at least, you're just going to tell me to watch too much TV? Like, you're not even going to attempt to, like, even hear me out? Well, and to your point, it kind of makes you wonder, does this officer know this LAPD officer well, and is trying to protect them, Darren? Well, in 1985, British <laughs> genealogist Alec Jeffries created the practice of DNA profiling, the process of matching a set of DNA to a single person, which we now know has exonerated a lot That's of tons right. of people. So this is and put he, people behind bars. Like he's the, amazing. Like the Golden State Killer, among others. Correct. Yes. Two years later in 87, again, this is all before uh, the 88 when he was mm -hmm. playing as a potential subject. In 87, DNA profiling was used to apprehend a killer for the first time. Wow, a British man named Colin Pitchfork who murdered two young girls, Linda Mann mm -hmm. and Dawn Ashworth. And we actually mm -hmm. did an episode on him. That's right. If you guys remember. And by the early 90s, as you can imagine, so 87 was the first arrest. By the early 90s, the news of this new technology has spread across the globe and just continues to spread across the globe, exonerating yeah. and are putting the right people behind bars. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the 90s, this was like the first step towards where we are now, which is now you can do all kinds of stuff with DNA right. and genealogy and things like that. Well, in 1993, Nels requested a meeting with detectives to inquire about possible new leads, but there were none. In the meeting, Nels told officers about an article he'd read about DNA fingerprinting and offered to pay out of pocket to have the evidence collected at Sherry's crime scene processed in a private lab. This opens another conversation that we can save for another time about yeah. people having to use their own resources to get uh, police departments to investigate and and or to expedite, test. which is okay, yeah. fine. But these guys are basically being like, "No, you watch too much TV, bruh." Right, and the police turned him down actually, and advised him and his family to move on with their lives. I mean, sure, what? Yeah, that's what we should tell Heyman Lee's family. Yeah, right, exactly, definitely. Uh However, Nels wasn't the only person enthralled by the idea that the DNA fingerprinting might be able to solve years-old cold cases. In 1993, LAPD detective David Lamkin helped solve the 1963 murder of Thora Rose using the newly available technology and became enamored with the idea that he could continue solving cold cases this way. I mean, imagine being the person that's literally like, I think I have an idea. You right. go in, and you get fingerprints. You, yeah, yeah, you do the fingerprinting, you do the DNA thing, and you're able to solve a cold case from decades before. I mean, that would be almost totally. addictive to me. I agree. And in a weird way, you know, like that kind of sleuthing, I think, is what also makes true crime fans love true crime shows and podcasts because maybe they think they'll discover something that like nobody else I has found. I think that's the. I think yeah. that's always the heart outside of having obviously yeah. justice for these people is right. a treasure hunt. You yeah. know, for lack of right. a better term, it's it's a, it's a puzzle to pick figure out. Every murder has an answer. That's true. You know, 
That's a good There's point. someone who did it, so I think that's kind of keeps people coming back. That's the name of Darren's new podcast, Every Murder Has an Answer, with Darren Carp. <laughs> coming summer 2023. And it's me. And yeah. it's me, yeah. Well, anyway, from 1991 through 1996, David worked a slew of cold cases and was able to close everyone he started wow. and maintained a 100% success rate within that five-year span. I mean, that's impressive in and of itself. Well, by October of 1998, the FBI launched what we all know now as CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. This enabled police to compare DNA profiles of suspects from across the country. So this is sort of a national, um, I think at this time it was just the U.S. database. I feel like it might be international now, but I could be wrong. But nonetheless, David, excited by this new prospect, immediately proposed the creation of a new LAPD task force to use CODIS to help clear the state's massive backlog of cold cases. Let's not forget, too, it, you know, it's mid-90s. They're not that far removed from the Golden State Killer going on his Golden State Killer spree. Absolutely. So that's certainly front of mind, I feel like, for a lot of these professionals that are working on this and creating task force as well. Well, the task force went live. Um, In November of 2001, two teams of three detectives each led by David. All seven detectives worked in a single 250-square-foot room that had once been a janitorial closet. I'm just, like, imagining, like, all these grown men, like, sitting around a computer, I'm assuming. It's very made for TV, it almost feels like. Yeah, that's a great point. They should make a TV show about this. They should. Nobody take our idea. Um, it's like we don't work in television and should right. be doing this anyway. <laughs> anyway, the unit worked to clear blocks of cases with DNA profiling, focusing on cases that had a good chance of DNA being present within the forensic evidence taken from the scene. So, you know, the the cases that have a wealth of information that they can of work with versus others that don't. Yeah. Specifically, they were focused on sexually motivated crimes, the burglaries, um, which have a great chance of fingerprint evidence, by the way. Right. I right. can't, I, you know, I, I would assume the, the Golden State Killer was also, you know, front of mind here. But they didn't really have, they had, I don't, I'm wondering if the person who came forward with that information about him had, I, I'm just wondering if they had DNA of him by this point. I don't know. I don't did. know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if they did. I don't know what rape kits were done on those victims. Yeah, I know. know? Right. Well, in September of 2003, David's task force came upon Sherry's murder case and flagged it as having potentially strong evidence. The team put out a request for the evidence taken from the scene, but the request was ignored by the crime lab due to major staffing shortages. Mm. And it just makes me wonder, like, these are a lot of setbacks on this one case. Imagine how many others there are. You know what I mean? It's just, and it makes you wonder, like, is that a coincidence or are there other things at play here that are just causing, saying, you know. Think of how many people are on death row right now, let alone not even solving cases of murdered victims. Think of how many people right. are innocently suffering currently by not doing this from the right. backlog. Right. Well, in December of 2004, a criminalist named Jennifer Butterworth, who worked at the crime lab, noticed the request sitting on a coworker's desk and offered to handle it. This is how much so much of life changes. Jennifer located a blood sample taken from Sherry's autopsy, which gave her Sherry's DNA profile. However, a week went by before she was able to locate the evidence containing alternate DNA samples. Finally, however, she found the envelope containing the swab from the bite mark. Finally. On Sherry's arm. Finally. 
The swab showed the presence of two sets of DNA. Sherry's, okay, which her would make body, sense. Yeah. And her killers. The second DNA profile did not turn up a hit with CODIS. However, while pro- processing the DNA, Jennifer did actually notice something unusual. Most violent crimes are committed by males, as we know, whose gender markers show up as XY on a DNA profile or tend to show up, you know, XY, not everyone's mm-hmm, XY, mm-hmm. but yes. This profile's gender marker was XX, showing that Ooh. Sherry's killer was female. Now, on February 8th, 2005, Jennifer sent her report to David highlighting this specific detail. And in basically like six months prior to this, in November of 2004, California had yeah. passed Proposition 69, if we remember, which required police officers to collect DNA from anyone arrested on a felony or sex crime charge. This flooded the CODIS database with new samples, Okay. So while the gender matching, of course, was helpful, the DNA in Sherry's case did not point to a specific killer. So unfortunately, this case was shelved while the task force dealt with all the new evidence stemming Ugh. from Prop 69. So while it's sad that it went cold, perhaps yeah. they were able to solve other cases in the meantime. And in 2007, David Lamkin had retired, having solved over 40 cold cases with this task force, which had taken over by Robert Bubb. Great name. And during the changeover, many of the shelved cases, including Sherry's, were sent to a different cold case task force in Van Nuys, which is in L.A. In 2008, Robert also transferred to the Homicide Division in Van Nuys, which only handles about five to seven cases per year. It's just, you know, as you're you're talking about some of this, de- some of these details, you know, we're going from 2004 and 2007, eight, and now we're about to talk about 2009. And it's like. It's like frustrating because we're sitting here and and quickly we can talk about that years that have passed. But like, imagine what it must feel like for her family. You know what I mean? It's been so long. Yeah. Torture. Well, in 2009, Robert's division had no homicides to work on. So they started looking for an interesting cold case to solve and picked Sherry's after noticing that the gender markers made the original theory of that case. The two Latino burglars. Remember that? Impossible, essentially. Right. Or it could be one female Latino burglar, but it ain't two male. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the unit went through the entire case file with fresh eyes and newly armed with the knowledge that they were hunting for a female suspect. One of the names that jumped out to them was that of Stephanie Lazarus, John Rutten's ex-girlfriend and former LAPD officer. Eventually, the unit compiled a list of five possible female suspects arranged from most to least likely to have murdered Cherry. Stephanie was actually at the bottom of the list as the detectives had a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea that a fellow officer could have killed somebody. And I agree with that, but at least she made the fucking list. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I mean, yeah, I don't know, especially given what we know about the Golden State Killer who used to be a police officer himself. Well, we didn't know that then, though. No, I know. But I'm just saying the point is, you know. Well, it's like I, I it's like when like it's like when doctors look... hurt people, right? Like yeah, yeah, there yeah. are bad, shitty doctors that do terrible things, Great point. and there yes. are bad lawyers, and there are bad police officers. Like yeah, and any profession and anything, there's good and bad. And for you to just rule out something because you can't fucking wrap your head around right. it is bunk. Exactly. Well, the officers agreed that while they investigated the murder, they would never speak or write Stephanie's name where anyone else might be aware of it and would maintain complete secrecy about the fact that they were investigating another officer. Good, because they didn't want to be thwarted at the problem. Like, yeah, you know, they didn't want to be thwarted. So they're kind of keeping it mum because, you know, you see a name come across and she's going to be erased immediately, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, that's true. Well, the team was able to eliminate three of the women on their list and were only left with uh, Stephanie and a nurse who occasionally argued with Sherry at work. 
Okay. okay, well, all right, we're getting somewhere, I guess. The team investigated the nurse and even took her DNA. The sample did not match, and they were left with only one name on their list, Stephanie. The team began digging into the past. Stephanie and John were friends in college and then dated on and off for a few years after graduation. In early 1985, John got involved in a serious relationship with Sherry, proposed to her after only a few months, and married her within a year. Within the year, I should say. By February of 1986, when I was just one month old, though, Sherry was dead. At the time of Sherry's murder, Stephanie was working as an LAPD detective in an art theft unit, married to another officer and, a mo- and the mother of a child the two had adopted together. She had never even really been accused of any mis- misconduct, so, you know, she had a pretty much clean record within the department. Yep. However, all LAPD detectives in the mid-80s carried a 38 caliber backup weapon, the same gun that was used to shoot Sherry. So now we're really adding to the mountain of evidence here. Aside from, you know, narrowing it's, down. It doesn't her. look good for her. Although the fact that she's never been, had any yeah. misconduct would make me feel more confident that she wasn't the killer. Totally. Well, then also you know? St- Stephanie's, uh, Stephanie reported that her gun was stolen less than two weeks after Sherry's murder. So that's another okay. interesting detail. Detectives were able to obtain a copy of the stolen gun report, and it stated that Stephanie's car had been broken into and a slew of her personal possessions had been stolen along with her backup weapon. The unit then finally spoke to Sherry's father, Nels, about his daughter's confrontation with Stephanie at the hospital, and he was able to retell what he remembered of that story, Darren, which was, of course, very interesting. Okay, so at this point, Robert notified his superiors that his unit was seriously looking at a fellow officer as a prime suspect in this cold case investigation and that they needed to obtain a DNA sample for testing. That's what I kept thinking. I'm like, right, that DNA. (laughs) The units the unit surveyed Stephanie for a week until they were able to collect a sample of her DNA, a cup with a straw that she threw in the garbage can. And the Mm -hmm. surveillance team collected it and sent it to the lab for testing, which is. A la Golden State. <laughs> yeah, and several, uh, yeah, definitely. Cup, cup, cup and straw, people. Yeah. Well, on May 29th, 2009, I mean, this is years, years after ago, this happened yeah. now, you know, like this is this is almost 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Robert received a call from the lab letting him know that Stephanie's DNA was a match to the sample found wow. in the bite wound on Sherry's arm. In fact, the test indicated that there was a 1.7 sextillion to one chance that the DNA belonged to someone other than Stephanie. So that's a 17 followed by 20 zeros okay oh more gosh. than people exist in the world i didn't even know sextil- a lot. <laughs> i didn't even know sextillion was a number yep good to it know it is All right, and on june f- on june 5th two officers brought 49 year old stephanie into an interrogation room to ask her about a case she had a connection to the murder of her ex-boyfriend's wife sherry they spoke to her for over an hour in a way that left it unclear as to whether they were questioning her as a possible witness or a possible suspect And it wasn't until they asked for a sample of her DNA that Stephanie finally asked for a lawyer and got up to leave. I wonder if she's like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was saying like, I wonder if she's thinking like, these are my friends or like, you know. I think at first and then they're like, give me a DNA sample. At this point, (laughs) Stephanie was handcuffed, placed under arrest and taken to jail where she was held on a $10 million bail. Wow. And she was charged with the first degree murder of Sherry Rasmussen. And the prosecution team made the case that on the morning of February 24th, 1986, Stephanie entered Sherry and John's home with her backup weapon. There was a lengthy struggle that resulted in the home appearing ransacked and the faithful bite mark on Sherry's arm. 
Although they were unable to come up with a clear motive, the overwhelming DNA evidence was enough to prove Stephanie's guilt to the jury. And it took them just just over a day to convict Stephanie. Hmm. And in May of 2012, only 10 years ago, Stephanie was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison for Sherry's murder with the possibility of parole in 2039 after serving a minimum of 16 years. Man, only wow. a police officer is going to get that fucking sentence. Here. I know. And just to be clear, it was actually 27 years. Um, I think uh, sorry, 20. 20 yeah. Oh, sorry. 27 years to life in, in prison for Sherry's murder. Um, only a police officer is going to get that fucking shit. I know. And it's like the other thing about this, too, is like, yeah, what? That's what I just kept thinking throughout this entire show today. I was like, what is the motive? And especially to enter and shoot with the exact weapon that you were issued from the police department. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Come she was on. a very smart police no. officer. Gotta say. Gotta no. say. Yeah. So anyway, let us know what you thought about this week's episode. You can hit us up on social at jthrasher at Carpe Darren. Um, you can hit us up in our Facebook group and, of course, on Patreon, where we are responding to direct messages. Um, Darren, I'm going to get into listener shout outs right at the top here, if you don't mind. Let's do it. Sure. Eileen in our Facebook group said, quote, I'm behind on listening to the podcast, but I wanted to thank John Thrasher for giving a shout out to social workers. My daughter graduated with a degree in social work this past spring and is now pursuing Yay. her master's degree. Unfortunately, most only hear about social workers when something has gone terribly wrong in a case. They are the unsung heroes when it comes to helping people work through everyday challenges, end quote. And I do remember that was probably the episode where the social worker was showing up and kept wanting to get into the house and was unfortunately denied every single time. So anyway, Eileen, um, shout out to your daughter and thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. Congratulations and Mazel Tov. And Sandy in our Facebook page, as well as my mother. (laughs) And a few others. Notice a little moment yes. in last week's episode. John saying, I love the squirrel moment when they pause to post breaking news about Adnan Sayed. Glad to know I'm not the only one who does this. LOL. Yeah. It was such a squirrel moment. It was um, a squirrel. I love calling it a squirrel moment. It's such a squirrel moment, and we apologize, but uh, you're really well, hearing what we think in real time, people. It's true. And I will confess, I left it in the episode. I, frankly, what I did was I didn't mark it down because I thought it was only going to take us a second, and then you know i posted the episode and then one person beep 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 beep. it took a long time yeah i know and then one person on our facebook group was like i loved how long it took for them to and i was like oh god was this longer than i realized so i go i went back to the thing and i listened to it and i was like oh my god there's like several minutes of dead air where you and i are on on record but you know so long story short i went in and i did cut it out it was just a little bit too long of a pause but so if you did hear it Congratulations. Um, you hear also, us. no, you didn't. You yeah. Also, I mean? you're lying. So you're lying. We don't. Exactly. We don't believe you. We don't believe what you're saying. And please... or my mother. Well, and then Darren texted me. I think it was this morning, actually. And you were yeah. like, uh, "By the way, my mom has got Susan. Be careful, Susan. Be careful. I love that. You know what? Your mom is our official QA. You know, person. She she's making sure every episode. She's doing comes quality out, control. Comes out yeah. when it's you know, she's keeping Absolutely. us honest. I love that. Well, guys, spooky hoodie season has arrived. And if you want to look super cute and comfy, then you need to get your Shaken and Disturbed merch. We modeled our merch over on our Facebook group so you could run over there and see how cute we look in it. You can check our show notes for the link if you want to get it uh, to feel cozy this fall. I am not exaggerating. I'm not saying this. To be quite honest with you, we don't make a lot of money off of our merch. Correct. The Shaken and Disturbed hoodie that I ordered was... And is my new favorite hoodie. I wear it everywhere. 
Um, I was in Kohl's the other day and the cashier was like, what's shaken and disturbed? I said, it's my podcast. How dare you? Uh, um, yeah, exactly. So I really do highly recommend the hoodies. They really are super duper comfy. I went, I'm usually in XL. I went to XL just to give me a little bit of breathing room. You know, I love a super oversized hoodie. I mean, it just feels like you're wearing a blanket. So check it out. I'm check the show today. notes. Yeah, it looks yeah. comfy. And I just wanted to say before we sign off, by the way, we'll be announcing details of our Halloween Patreon live stream next week. So be sure to sign up now so you don't miss the details. You can get bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, long pauses, and videos, first dibs, (laughs) and discount codes on merch, and so much more for as little as $5 a month. You can even get it cheaper if you sign up annually. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to us, which would go a long, long, long way for our show. And it doesn't cost you a thing, and we really appreciate it. That's right. And we will say, Darren, I'm going to just make the executive decision that our Halloween live stream will be a costume party. Yep, yep. And have you thought about what you're gonna be yet? You don't have to tell us, but have you thought about what you could wear? I'm thinking. I'm okay. still. I'm still ruminating. I'm we'll announce it later, but yeah, start thinking about it. And of course, we couldn't have the show if it weren't for our lovely, amazing researcher Megan. So let's give her a shout out. One, two, three. Thanks, Thanks Megan. Megan. We love and you, Megan. And we'll be back next week with another NMR and another full case to blow your mind. Woo-hoo. Have a great week, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.